If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, today we have got Diana Zhang on the podcast. She is the co-founder and CEO of NeighborShare, and we are going to be talking about how to run a successful all-volunteer and all-remote organization. I know a lot of our listeners are in this boat where you are an all-volunteer force, and so I think you're going to learn a lot from Diana today. Before I introduce her, let me just quickly remind folks that registration for our most popular webinar is just about to open. Our most popular webinar is on strategic planning. It's scheduled for April 14th. You literally will learn everything you've ever wanted to know about strategic planning, but maybe we're afraid to ask. So we'll cover everything from, hey, how do you find a good consultant, to what level of participation should staff have and my board have and community partners, et cetera. So make sure you go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and check it out. As I said, registration is just about to open. And now, let me introduce to you Diana Zhang. As I've already said, she is the co-founder and CEO of NeighborShare, which is a nonprofit that empowers communities' frontline heroes, those case managers, those caseworkers, those clergy members, to help families through critical moments of need when maybe the cost of helping them is $400 or less. Now, Diana spent 15 years in strategy and operations as an executive at Bridgewater Associates. And... If you don't know Bridgewater Associates, it's a premier asset management firm. You might think of it as like a hedge fund. And the other thing that I really wanted to drive home, because to me, this is so impressive. Diana is so committed to neighbor share that she has taken an unpaid sabbatical from her hedge fund executive job so that she can focus solely on building out neighbor share. Because every position, as I've already said at neighbor share, is an unpaid volunteer position. So you already know you're in for a great conversation. Diana, welcome to the podcast. 
Hi, Dolph. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for such a generous introduction. I'm just really excited to be here. I am really thrilled you're here because, as I said, a lot of our listeners are in a similar place where they're trying to figure out how to scale an all-volunteer force. And before we jump right in and talk about that, though, I understand that your personal journey has informed your work with NeighborShare. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at a at a personal level, I'm a first generation immigrant. Um, you know, I moved here to the states with my parents when I was around five from China, and you know, throughout childhood, in addition to moving seven to eight times, like I literally never stayed within the same school for more than a year and a half, school year wise. I think. Um, you know, we also went through our different periods of sort of economic stress and struggle. You know, remembering sort of like almost the shame I remember feeling standing in the lunch line in elementary school, and I had a reduced lunch price ticket. The way the school had to set up, it was like a different color from everyone else's normally priced lunch tickets. And I remember just sort of wanting to hide that because like my friends would notice and be like, "Hey, what is that? Whatever it is." I was always so just embarrassed about my family situation. And so part of the reason why I'm so passionate about neighbor sharing what we do is because both the, the the coming from that place of struggle and knowing what that feels like, and then using sort of like when I when I remember those feelings of shame, et cetera, and using that to make sure we're designing experience for the ultimate neighbors are trying to help in a way that really creates dignity and the sense of it's just community helping community, neighbors helping neighbors in a in an equal ecosystem, right? There's not a have or have not type of thing. And so certainly my personal experience has informed this a lot, both the, the passion behind it and also the way in which we're trying to achieve our mission. It's so meaningful that you have literally taken your own lived experience and, and say and ask yourself, what can I do with this to design an organization that will help? And so talk to me a little bit about your origin story for NeighborShare. So how did you and your co-founder get together, decide to actually launch the organization, decide what it was going to do, et cetera. You know, NeighborShare is a is a startup uh, nonprofit born fully out of the pandemic. If you sort of flash back to the spring of 2019, right? It was the period when we we're all just getting sent home to work from home and things like that. We were still saying hopeful things to each other, like, oh, at like two months max, right? Like that, that type of thing. And then at the same time, I remember sitting at home watching the headlines start rolling in, right? Sort of the the headlines of need and struggle and people immediately not being able to make their rent after the communities were shut down only within the first couple of weeks, right? It just like very rapidly, I'm sure everyone remembers, a very rapidly exposed fragility that's always been in our system. And so I remember very rapidly just starting to feel this intense sense of frustration <laughs> about the state of our communities and feeling a ton of just energy and passion in this like just bottled up thing around the like, what can I do to help right now? Because wow, like the world needs it. Like the world is literally falling apart as we speak. And luckily enough, my my now co-founder, this wonderful um, friend and mentor named Brian Kreider, he actually was going through a parallel experience in a way that I didn't even realize. And he he literally called me up. It was like a random Wednesday night. I just remember so viscerally because it was a very sort of momentous random call <laughs> that turned to be momentous. And he he literally called me up, expressed some of the same emotions and was like, hey, Diana, but you know, based on my observations in the social impact space for the past couple of decades, because he's been always very passionate in this space and involved and, you know, built different nonprofits in the past. 
He was like, I've had a series of insights that I never quite prioritized doing anything with because it's life, job, family, et cetera. But now I feel like I don't have an excuse. <laughs> and so he basically made this sort of like unsolicited pitch to be like, hey, I know we're busy and we're now dealing with this thing called COVID, but we want to build a business on the side. <laughs> and me being me, it was like a 15 minute pitch. And I was like, I was in. And that was sort of like, it was literally that 15 minute call that became sort of like the little like igniting spark that caused us and me and, and all our volunteers and, and wonderful team to, to start embarking on this journey. To your point about, you know, what did we set off to do? You know, we really started the whole effort with really the question just of how can we get direct help to the people who need it the most in our communities when they need it? Like that was the problem statement, basically, right? And the key insight and innovative insight that we've been working to implement and build out is this notion of, and you said it in your intro, is this notion of how do we go empower the folks in our communities who know right, when those needs are happening. Because if you think about it from the perspective of a typical donor, and I was that typical donor, right, just like less than two years ago, if I were just walking down the street saying things like, of course, I'd be willing to help a neighbor for 20 bucks, like, you know, like, well, I wouldn't say no to that, of course, I wouldn't actually know where to go. I wouldn't know behind which doors down my street is someone who's actually really going through a pivotal moment of need that could just really use a bit of help, right, where small amount of money can have really pivotal impact. And so once again, we went to the, let's go to the folks who do know, the folks who literally have the pulse in their communities are walking close to their communities and, and have that rich, rich understanding of need. And just as importantly, which needs are being met and which ones are unfortunately slipping through the cracks because they themselves can't cover it or whatever it is. Right. There's lots of lots of folks that I know our audience knows even better than I do. And so that's what our whole model is about. Right. We go empower the existing awesome local organizations, nonprofits, et cetera, all across the country and just give them this extra resource to be able to help families in those moments of need that would otherwise slip through the cracks. That's awesome. And you're doing that entirely with volunteers. I mean, obviously, the organizations you're partnering with have employees, but you're doing it entirely with volunteers. And I think you've built a volunteer force of, I'm going to get the number wrong, but I want to say over like 40 volunteers. Yeah, we have, you know, we have sort of anywhere ranging between 25 to 30 volunteers on the ground building with me every day. We also have a great volunteer advisory council of about eight. And then we have a wonderful board of five folks and growing. And so added together, I'm bad at real time math, but yeah, like a bit over 40 and, and growing as we speak. And when I spent some time on your website, I actually uh, looked at a couple different volunteer opportunities listed as job descriptions, but also making it very clear that it was unpaid and completely volunteer. And so um, part of what I was astounded by is both those positions said it was a 0.5 FTE or full-time equivalent to one full-time equivalent. That's a lot to ask. So like who, who steps forward and says, okay, yeah, I can give 20 hours a week or I can give 40 hours a week? Yeah. I mean, I would say, look, like most of that number I quoted, right? Let's say that 25 to 30 on the ground, most can achieve that. <laughs> we'll set that as the ideal because I've certainly learned in this space that if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. But one of the things I've certainly learned and learned to apply in this space is like be flexible, <laughs> right? And so, you know, more often than not, it's much more toward the per person and and you're ranging from five to 10 to 15 hours a week versus the, you know, to your point, half time or full time. But what I've learned is that with some good planning and visualization, empathy on both sides and flexibility, you can get a lot out of folks um, if you sort of set them up in the right way and set expectations in the right way. So first lesson is really be flexible. I think that's right. It's, it's being flexible and nimble, right? And then just understanding the challenge that look like, especially in a volunteer role, your organization and the things you need to get done will automatically be someone's third, fourth, fifth, sixth priority, right? There's just a reality to that in exchange for the fact that I 
can't afford to compensate them, right? And so learning how to both be flexible, how to think through very rapidly plan A's, uh, plan B, C's and D's if you need it, if something, someone needs to pivot or like, oh man, I just had a project roll up on me at my, at my day job, what do I do, et cetera. You learn to go with the flow a little bit while still sort of chugging along forward to, to execute against your plans. And so, so yes, flexibility is key. And so now I'm going to do some quick math that I might get wrong in my head, but I'm going to try to do some quick math. So in about a year and a half, you've built an organization where you have, you know, 40 plus volunteers, let's say each volunteering 10 hours a week on average. So that's 400 hours a week or 10 FTEs. So I know we have some listeners with earbuds in their ear that are thinking, how, how do I get 10 FTE volunteers in the next 18 months? And I'm hoping you can unlock that secret. Yeah, no, that's a, such a great question. Um, you know, in my mind, the process that I followed was almost like the typical recruiting process that I followed in my for-profit job, right? So in, in my mind, I applied the same sort of mental maps almost in the for-profit, what it takes to hire a full-time person into the volunteer space. And I really think that through that almost full employee cycle, think of it that way, right? Like, you know, like in a way it's like, I stopped calling them volunteers. This is just your team, right? So it's sort of like step one is, attract? Like, how do you even get potential talent to be interested in you, right? And I think one of the most important things that an employer can do, once again, whether you're for-profit or non-profit, is thinking really clearly about what your value proposition is for your talent. That's sort of like key step number one. So think about it deeply and then market it well. And so like to give a tangible example for NeighborShare, you know, I think our value proposition is, is threefold. Right. There's first and foremost, right? We certainly believe, and I certainly believe, and I'm truly passionate about that, we have a really critical social impact mission. Right. So sharing that passion, et cetera. I know all our audience, like our entire audience, your entire audience is, is has that already. So it's like check, good. You have that going for you already. Right. Secondly, for us, and especially since we're so new, we're giving folks a real opportunity to join an entrepreneurial adventure and giving them the opportunity to be part of building something from the ground up. Right. And it actually ends up being a really great developmental and growth opportunity for folks. Imagine like, you know, the folks that we have, like whether it's our product designer or our engineer or our, our content person, they can basically play a level or two above what they do in their day job and they get to have their playground here. Right. And so like for our thing, our specific stick is like, hey, for those of you who's always felt that itch to be like, oh, I want to be a part of a startup, et cetera, but I, I'm not going to leave the steady job and, and all that stuff. We provide that for you. <laughs> Come do your entrepreneurial thing with us here and build and have space to create, right? And then last but not least, you know, for us, the, the value prop is come join sort of like what's a really wonderful community and network. In addition to um, just joining a team that's comprised of just good people doing good work, just like good values alignment. You know, we've at this point built out a team that has like it's like a really accomplished group with real network, right? And so sort of like, what's funny is over this past year and a half, I've probably done more like business school recommendations and new job reference calls, et cetera, folks, than I have in like 10 years before that, right? Cause like we wow. very much have the system of like, let's help each other out and pay it forward for each other in different ways. So there's a bit of this embrace of like, come join NeighborShare and we'll help take care of you. Right. So that became sort of like our holistic value prop that we developed through time. And, you know, and then sort of like, you know, I would challenge folks in the audience to think through what's a value prop for our organization? Like what sort of unique competitive advantage can I bring in to attract talent so that it's like a great exchange of um, value for each other? Mm -hmm. I also I love the I the concept of thinking of your volunteers as talent. So they're not just like unpaid volunteers. No, you're our talent. Yes. Yes. And it's a competitive talent market out there. Right. 
It is. It absolutely is. So, okay, so you say you kind of start with the attract because then what's the next step for you in getting those great volunteers? Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's certainly part of the pitch in the cell and like sharing the value prop. And then there's a part of it, which is also, um, and it's so interesting, I get this question a lot. It's also like just setting um, clear expectations up front, right? Like the way I paint it to our volunteers is you're joining and coming to be an owner of the organization with me. You're coming to build, right? And so if you're looking for the type of volunteer gig where you like come in for an hour, you like do your thing, and then you like, you know, like- Right, you ladle out soup, right. That's actually not the type of volunteer we're looking for, right? We're yeah. looking for entrepreneurial owners. And and once again, we're very flexible. We're not saying, oh, you've signed up for this, and then for the next couple of weeks, you're out, whatever it is. And we're like, you know, hey, what's going on? No, like we'll be flexible and empathetic. And, you know, and, and once again, the work from both sides will go up and down. But I set a high bar up front around just the expectation of, of ownership and like come in and shape it with us. And what's so interesting is that like, I think that actually sort of like helps us attract more and better volunteers, even though like, you would logically think like, wouldn't that turn away folks as they get scared of the commitment, et cetera. They're actually more excited by that opportunity right? To be that owner and to be part of like the real shaping and the real impact of the place, right? Versus being this, this narrow, almost like small cog in the machine that may or may not even matter. So that's like a, been a key part of it. Diana, I, I talk with organizations about this all the time in terms of board recruitment, you know, because board members in the nonprofit sector are volunteers as well. And so I always talk about, yeah, you want to set your bar really high and you want to be upfront about it. And so often an organization will say to me, but Dolph, we're worried we won't be able to get board members. And my response is always, yeah, maybe you'll get 20% less board members, but you'll get 120% more out of your board members. Like, so, okay, give up a couple. Right. Well, because if you're going to get a board member who's at the end of the day not going to commit to doing much, then like, why are you having them fill that seat? Right. <laughs> like, it's right. sort of like, what value are they bringing? Right. And so, so I think that's right. Like, I think it's being upfront about it, being clear that you'll be flexible, though, right? Sort of like another policy I have is like, folks should be having fun while they're working on building neighbor share, right? Like I'll be that, I'll definitely be that CEO who's like texting me like, hey, where's that thing? Like, it's not like we don't have accountability at fall, but of course we do. But at the same time, like I know that this is a person's like extracurricular, <laughs> right? So you have to make it fun and enjoyable. And then, you know, I do a lot of upfront conversations and matching on the, hey, here's the business needs on our end, right? Here's certain priorities and certain types of problems we need to crack. What are you interested in? More often than not, it completely aligns with the thing that they do in their day job, which is oftentimes the expertise that we need. But other times it might be a person who says, hey, but I kind of do that all day. I'd love to learn more about this. But I might not be the expert, but like you'll, I'll be extra hands and I'll learn and I'll be committed to it, et cetera. So then once again, it becomes like an interesting new exploratory, like exploratory ground for them. Maybe that's where they want their career to go. So like work back and forth in that way. Like don't be rigid on your end to find that match for that person so that once again, achieve that like, hey, I want to work for NeighborShare. What that makes me think of when I was spending some time on your website, I, I noticed that all, and I think all or most of your volunteers are listed on your website with their titles. And so as an example, I noticed there was a business development associate and then a business developer or multiple business development associates, and then business development managers. And so like, how does that fit within that paradigm of talking to people about what it is they want to do and putting them in the right or getting them to the right spot? No, absolutely. So, you know, once again, I run our volunteer team just like any other business I've run, right? So I have an org chart. I have like a team org chart. Once again, I kind of ignore the word volunteer. This is just my team. It is just my talent. And you literally lay it out, 
right? Where it's sort of like, okay, at this point, NeighborShare is complex enough that we need to have multiple types of functions running and whatever else. And then obviously I, as a CEO, can't stay on top of all of that. So then you think about, okay, what's my next bench of leadership that allows me to oversee all the different activities, et cetera. And then, and then from there, to your point, you have the associates together to then support and then execute against a lot of the things. And then in the matching of folks to that, once again, it's just good, frank conversations about both what you're interested in, what you're capable of, and what you have capacity to do. Right. And so the org chart is not meant to be this like strict hierarchy, like I'm more senior than you or something. Like, for example, our business development lead, that's probably rotated three or four times. And it's oftentimes an associate saying, I can take on the ball this quarter because the, the, the lead who was doing it for the previous quarter, like, oh, just got a new job, really busy. Let's bring them down to associate. So it's less responsibility. Right. So there's this good sort of like we're all in it and figuring it out. There's not the like, oh, so and so got promoted type of culture versus like so and so is like taking on more ownership. Thank you for stepping up and doing that. Right. Um, and then and then, of course, at the same time, there's this constant evaluation in my head of like, of course, we're only asking or I'm only asking folks who I think would be capable of doing that. Right. Or making sort of explicit judgments on what level of risk am I taking if I'm stretching a person who might not be as experienced or might not have proven track record of doing that previously, but hey, clearly has a talent and more importantly has that passion, more often than not, I'll take that bet and let and we'll just say, let's go experiment and see if it works out. Let's just go for it. And what do you do to help make sure that experiment is a success? Yeah, I think it's like a few different things. So one, and especially in those like leadership roles at the volunteer level, right? Because those are bigger roles. And once again, you know, these are people who have full-time jobs and family and all those things. And so um, even when I've set them up as like, hey, go help lead this thing, I'm partnering with them throughout, right? Sort of like I'm giving them space and, and sort of like ownership freedom to go be creative and shape. But it's also, of course, not the type of thing where it's like, oh, okay, see you at the deep end of the pool. You got it, right? Versus like we're constantly there together, working closely together to... Um, formulate that plan, execute upon it and whatever it is. And then just constant, good, open communication around the, what do you need? What are the challenges? Like, let's just go back and forth on it. Oh, great. You kind of need two more volunteers. Oh, interesting. Like, let's go figure out our strategy for recruiting that. Is it that like, oh, interesting. Like you need more tech stuff, but like you can't get in touch with the tech side because like they're off doing it. Okay, great. Let me connect that. It's sort of like, I still, you know, in a lot of ways built out leverage for myself, but especially with a volunteer model, I've definitely found that like, look, like you still need your finger in every pie a bit, right? Because at the end of the day, it's once again, recognizing that I've set up as much of the corporate structure as I can, but you know, you need to have adjustments because it's still a volunteer staff. So you've talked about this some already, but I think this really lends to that conversation about how you manage that unpaid volunteer talent in part, because as you've already alluded to, your volunteer talent isn't, and I'm not going to minute, I'm not minimizing this, but you know, but is not doing something rote like sorting clothes in the thrift store or ladling right. soup at the soup kitchen. Like they're doing kind of high level professional skilled work. So how do you manage that talent once you've got them on board? And it is kind of a day-to-day -day management. Yeah. Um, and I, th I do think that's a good distinction, Dolph. And, you know, we probably have volunteers in like both types of roles, right? Like some of the things that over time, once you've cracked it, will become a bit more rote. And then a lot of the times to your point, it is the like the more strategic, like I'm just giving you a white space problem. I don't know what to do. Can you go do some research and come back to me and let me know what we should do type of thing, right? There's like a few different pieces to how I oversee that. Like once again, like often more often than not, I'm part of the problem solving with them. Right. We'll divide and conquer on who's going to do that homework in the background and the research and the reach outs and the whatever. And then we'll come back and gather. But like there's like a closeness in just like let's work the problem together in that way. And I personally am a big believer in the fact that the most effective lever for developing your talent is on the job anyways. 
right? Like give them real responsibilities, stretch them a reasonable amount, and then give them the support they need to get the job done. That's what I did in my normal day job. And that's what I do now. Right. And so that's how we do it here too, where, um, you know, I think each and every single one of our volunteers has actually grown and developed a ton through this shared experience with each other, which is so cool to see because then they get to bring that back into their, their paid gig. Right. And so that's part of that value prop to do, but it's, it's that sort of like ongoing sort of like back and forth problem solving. And then in that exchange and in seeing how someone else breaks down a problem versus how I break down a problem, et cetera, in that exchange, like that's how we also give each other feedback and learn from each other. And so it's just like a constant, it's kind of just embedded in our culture at this point. I don't do things, for example, that I would do normally in like a, like a for-profit paid thing where it's like, oh, we have our quarterly review sessions or let's step back and go through expectations, et cetera. I don't run it as tightly as that per se, but a lot of the spirit of that just happens in our day to day. So, you know, I often, I often try to put my, myself in the, in the head of the listeners or the ears of the listeners. And I have a feeling there's a few listeners right now that are thinking, okay, this sounds great. But what I struggle with is how do I fire a bad volunteer? So have you had the experience where for whatever reason, someone wasn't a good fit or just kept not following through and you had to fire them? And how how did you do that? Yeah, so I think it's um, very important to hold the bar high and to get rid of the duds. Because by the way, excellence begets excellence and folks get motivated by watching other folks also contribute and, and lead and whatever, right? And so it's like a little bit like if you're gonna keep a group of B players or C players, you're gonna get B players and C players versus keep a A level, right? And so there's a couple of different ways. So there's one, the folks who like kind of like are enthusiastic up front and then kind of never deliver and they kind of trickle off, I let them trickle off. So there's sort of like, there doesn't need to be this like big, like, oh man, I have to have this like conversation to fire a volunteer. It's just like, let them go. <laughs> Don't be upset about it. Know that like with a volunteer, you're gonna have some reasonable turnover and you're gonna have folks like that who like all the intentions are good. There's no judgment on them, but then they probably just ended up over committing, right? Mm -hmm. Let them go. <laughs> I used to like do the whole, like, let's follow up, let's whatever. But it's like, nope, you can kind of read and tell the volunteer is gonna be great within the first couple of weeks of how they're gonna perform. And so make that judgment and like move on fast, right? So there's that piece of it. And then for those that aren't working out as well, like I do think we have frank conversations where there's like a couple different paths, right? There's either the like, hey, like thanks so much for what you're doing. It kind of seems to be not the great fit, et cetera, but the passion's clearly there and you have like, you know, really applicable skills, et cetera. You either have the form of conversation that's the, hey, like a gentler form that's like the, hey, like I think based on what I've seen so far, you'd actually be great in this part of the org. Would you be willing to make a flip and like help me out here instead? Mm -hmm. You know, one of my uh, favorite mentors gave me this analogy that I love where she's like, Diana, like your job as a manager is to constantly take a basket of fruit that someone gives you. And by the way, each piece of fruit, none of it is perfect. This apple's bruised. This banana has all these brown spots on it, et cetera. And your job as a manager is to make the best damn fruit salad you can out of that bruised fruit. Oh my gosh, I love that analogy. Wow. And so that's what I do, right? So it's sort of like, okay, like this part of the apple's bruised, let's go to the good part and let's switch them over to another part of the org that might work out, et cetera. So there's that. And then there are others that are just like kind of duds, like it's just not going to work out. And then it's sort of like, then you just have a good gentle conversation about that, you know? But it's sort of like, once again, hold that bar high though. What about those few? And, and I will say, I know these, this type of volunteer is few and far between, but it can cause a lot of angst and pain for nonprofits. Well, what about those volunteers that literally are counterproductive? Maybe they're bulls on bulls in a china shop or, you know, or just, you know, always, always angry or always stirring up drama or whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I fortunately not run into that specific case for the neighbor share team. Like, like no one's been that archetype, but I've certainly run into that in my, you know, 15 other years of running organizations and whatever else. And, you know, there's a couple things. One, like <laughs> upfront prevention is better than anything you can do, right? So even at the beginning, as you're sort of attracting and evaluating these volunteers, et cetera, like, you know, there is like an evaluatory part, right? Of setting expectations upfront of like culturally and values wise, what do we expect? Right. Like our key guideposts are always like we want good people doing good work. We want high capability and high humility. We want no jerks and we want no slackers. I, I just real quick, I'm actually going to put that on a poster. All of that. <laughs> that is perfect. <laughs> Thanks. But like, so that's like so prevention is key up front. And like, you know, and it's like, trust your gut a little bit. Like, even though everything's been via Zoom, like I, like I haven't even meet and, like meet, met a bunch of my volunteers in person yet, even after a year and a half working on this thing, um, trust your gut. And like, I know it's like a volunteer thing. So you're constantly in this position of like, ah, oh, but like, you got to sell, you got to sell. Yes, and you do. But trust your gut and like, is this a good bird or a bad bird, right? So there's, so that's the first part, which is like, try to prevent harm to your organization by first and full stop, like only bring in the people you believe in, right? And then let's say like, and of course that process isn't perfect. So then a person comes in and it's like, oh man, like culturally, whatever it is, like this isn't exactly uh, well meshed with the way the rest of the organization runs and whatever. I think in that case, I mean, certainly the way I've handled it in the past is like, you know, you, you have a couple of upfront conversations, right? To see sort of like, do they see what they're doing? And then whatever it is, um, you like put in a bit of investment, not a ton into like, is there a way to rehabilitate? Right? Like after the frank conversations, except you see adjustments in, in behavior or not. And then from there, if not, like, I think there's like, there needs to be some deep conversation about like, is this going to work out or not? Like, and then, then mm -hmm. it just goes into that previous logic flow that I painted before, right? Um, where the like, to your point, that harm, that negative impact, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it for the extra few hours of, of you know, hands that you get. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I love that. That is so helpful. Thank you. Thank you. So the last question that I think listeners might be thinking about right now is, obviously, I know you all operate primarily on donations or entirely on donations. What percentage, roughly, of your volunteers are also donors? Oh, that's a great question. So if I think about like the three different tranches, right, of like there's like the the on the ground volunteer team versus advisor versus board, now board is a percent contribution. Advisors, that's not a requirement. So it's probably like 50-50 in terms of people who've proactively just done it on their own versus not. And then on the team, I would say it's probably more, it's like lower than that. It's probably more like a third or so. Though what's funny is like, even if they're not personally donating, if I included then family members who donate on their behalf, then it more goes into like 75%. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah, so it's like interesting, like you see the na like the last names match up and like, oh, that's, you know, so-and-so's brother or father or someone going through it, coming in and, and supporting us, which is fantastic, right? And so, so that's sort of like the percentage. And, you know, and I've been pretty careful to not explicitly solicit in that way from our volunteers. I'll often ask them to like, hey, help us promote. We're like, hey, there's this latest Thanksgiving campaign, get the word out, talk to your friends, talk to your family, et cetera. But I don't really approach them because in my mind, they're already contributing sort of like the most valuable thing, which is like their talent, mm -hmm. right? And so in a lot of ways, I'm like, look, I'm not gonna push my luck in that way, <laughs> which could be right, could be wrong, but that's certainly how I thought about it. Again, I was just curious because I know our listeners are curious too, because I know, especially for organizations that have a lot of volunteers. And so that's always the question, okay, what percentage are giving and you know why do they give or why don't they give? So that's really helpful. Thank you. Now, Diana, I want to make sure that we have time for the off the map question. And I think I've got a good one because, you know, before I hit record, we were talking about really 
how difficult the pandemic has been. And it's part of why you founded NeighborShare, but really how difficult the pandemic has been and how much more limited all of our lives kind of have become during the pandemic. So I know most of us have started to binge stream something, right? Something. Um, even if it's just one show, at some point in the last two years, we've all like spent a weekend going, okay, I'm going to watch every episode of this. So assuming you've binged at least once, what's your most memorable binge stream of the pandemic? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I've been so like embarrassingly so many that I'm like just thinking through all the ones. Well, I'll, I'll more share it this way. My latest binge that I'm really into right now is a show called New Amsterdam, um, which is a show about a medical director running the biggest public hospital in the country. Um, and there's a lot of drama and intrigue and a lot of how do you go represent your your people and your patients. And there's like a lot that I love about that that resonates almost with the job that I play, the role that I play at NeighborShare, which is it's like it's advocating for your people and doing what's best for them, even if it's at the expense of some other things, right? And so that one's really resonated with me. So um, Ian, the, one of the frustrating things about streaming is everything's on a different service. So which streaming service is New Amsterdam on? It's on Peacock, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> admittedly, in our house, we only have Hulu and Amazon and Netflix. That's it. And it's funny because now all the networks are coming up with their own, and I'm like, okay, at some point, the monthly subscriptions just get too high. So no. Um, well, it basically is like you're just paying for cable, but now it's like split into these weird yeah. little apps and stuff. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, Diana, I am so grateful that you came on. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. I know our listeners have gotten a lot from it as well. I do, though, want to make sure that listeners know how they can find out more about NeighborShare. So listeners, if you go to nbshare.org, there are three things that I want you to think about doing at nbshare.org. The very first is you can help a neighbor by donating. The second, obviously, they're an all-volunteer-run organization. Maybe you're currently, I don't know, a recurring gifts associate at a large nonprofit, and you want to have the opportunity to grow your own professional fundraising skills. Well, think about reaching out to Diana, and that's diana at nbshare.org to find out what opportunities might be available for you to volunteer in a professional capacity. And then last, if you are a caseworker, a teacher, a member of the clergy, or a trusted community member in some other way, and you want to be able to partner with NeighborShare to help people in your community, you can also reach out to Diana at diana at nbshare.org. We're going to put all of that in our show notes, so you can always go to successful nonprofits. I often always kind of share with guests that most of our listeners um, have earbuds in and they're on the subway or they're out running or they're driving in their car. So I know you might not be able to write it down, but you can always go to successful nonprofits and get that. Diana, again, thank you for coming and sharing really what's been a remarkable 18-month journey. Thank you so much, Dolph. This was such a pleasure and a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Okay. So listeners, don't forget, you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and get everything that I just mentioned in our show notes. So nbshare.org and then also Diana's email address. I'll, I'll repeat it again, diana at nbshare.org. Now, if you found this episode helpful, if it really spoke to you because you think, yeah, my organization, we use a lot of volunteers or yeah, this is how I can be scaling my organization. I've learned a lot. There's two other episodes that I think you will get tremendous benefit from. The first is episode 129 with Barbara Van Dalen. 
That one's the no bricks, no mortar, 100% virtual nonprofit. Literally, they don't have an office. I'm sure they have a P.O. box you can mail checks to, but they don't even have an office. Everyone is virtual. And then the second, if you recall, back to episode 151, we had Rob Jackson on, uh, who gave us groundbreaking volunteer management ideas. So you can also check out that episode. And finally, listeners, if you found value in this, please rate and review us, subscribe, and share this episode with a colleague or a friend. That is our episode for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I get kind of tired of saying this last part, but the lawyers make me do it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. I also say this next part every time. This show is for informational purposes only. And guess what? shouldn't be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice. If you or your nonprofit find yourself needing that type of counsel, please find a licensed, qualified professional who specializes in the very specific item that you need counsel in and get their advice. If you're not sure who to reach out to, you can always contact me and I'm happy to help you find the right professional.